Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we share stories of people who experienced horrible things and try to imagine what they went through, as well as look for opportunities that could have made a difference and encourage people to help others that are being abused. It was May 17, 2001 in Phoenix, Arizona. Michael Turney, a single father, called 911 and reported his stepdaughter, 17-year-old Alyssa Turney, missing. He told police that she had disappeared between the time he dropped her off at home and picked up his biological daughter, Sarah, from a friend's house. He continued to tell police where he suspected she'd gone. Alyssa had talked frequently about going to live with her aunt in California, and Michael felt sure she had finally done it. The department, already having many missing people reported, assumed that she was a runaway and would turn up soon. But Alyssa's disappearance would end up becoming much more complicated. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I am Rosie. And this week's case is a bit of a mystery. Uh, Unfortunately, there's a ton of information on the case, but no solid answers. It's actually going to end up being a three-parter. So, we better dive into it. And our hope here is to raise awareness of this case and help the family spread their message. So, Rosie, you have anything else to say before we jump into it? I don't think so. All right, let's get going. Well, Alyssa's story starts with her parents, Barbara Farmer and Stephen Strom. Stephen worked selling real estate, and Barbara was a loan officer, so they met each other through work. Not long after, Stephen asked her out. At the time, Barbara had a two-year-old son named John, and the three of them got along really well. Eventually, Barbara and Stephen got married. On April 3, 1984, Alyssa Marie was born. Around the same time, the family moved into a house together in Arizona. But the couple's relationships started to go downhill. Barbara was becoming withdrawn from Stephen, and in the middle of a confrontation, Barbara said she didn't want to be married to Stephen anymore, and admitted that she was seeing another man, and wanted to take the kids and move in with him. Ouch. Yeah, that had to be tough. When Alyssa was three years old, her mom moved in with Michael Turney. He was an electrician at the time, and had formerly worked as a sheriff's deputy. Michael was 10 years older than Barbara, and they soon got married, and he illegally, he legally adopted John and Alyssa, making her Alyssa Marie Turney. He had three older sons at the time when they got married. Yeah, so Barbara was in her late 20s, and her new stepsons were in their early 20s. That's so weird. So they were closer in age to her um, than Michael was, and the boys' friends would make fun of him. And, like, say to those kids, like, dude, your mom's hot, and make them uncomfortable. It was an interesting family dynamic. I totally get why they would do that, though. I think I would be the same way. (laughs) 
I just feel so bad for Steven. And what the heck? Yeah, well, I'm sure there's always two sides to a failed relationship, you know? A year later, Michael and Barbara had a baby girl together, and they named her Sarah. So now the couple had six kids in total, four boys and two girls, which is quite a handful, I would imagine. Maybe to um, Barbara, though, it felt like she had a couple of new siblings. (laughs) Barbara worked as a loan officer for a bit and also worked at the toy company Mattel. That's really fun. Mm -hmm. Sometimes she'd bring home defective toys for her younger son, John. So he had a collection of weird and sometimes headless toys. It kind of sounds like Sid from Toy Story. And I just got to say, I think people are too hard on Sid. He's just a normal, creative kid who likes to figure out how things work. He's not. He's like, no, he's not. Do you remember when he burned a hole in in Woody's head? It's a toy. Yeah, but... (laughs) How else are you supposed to learn how fire works? I never treated my toys that way. But I have to say that it would be really fun to be John and get these, like, weird defective toys. Yeah. Well, anyway, the family settled down in Phoenix, Arizona. Once the family was all settled, Barbara started working from home to care for the kids. She ran a nanny business out of the house, and she would she and Michael would also breed huskies for a little extra income. That sounds like a pretty industrious person. I wonder what her company name was for her nanny service. Just curious. Huh, that's a good question. In 1993, soon after Sarah was born, Barbara got some terrible news. She was diagnosed with cancer, and less than a year later, she died. She was only 34 years old. Sarah was only four, and Alyssa was just eight years old. This had to be so hard for this family. I mean, Rosie, you know what that year was probably like, don't you? Yeah, definitely, when Grandpa got diagnosed. Yeah, it's such a difficult time, a difficult year watching your loved one die from such an unfair and horrible disease. Mm-hmm. Alyssa continued living with her stepfather, Michael. Now, over time, the older boys started gradually moving out of the home, and eventually, Alyssa and Sarah were the only two left in the house. Sarah and Alyssa had a typical sibling rivalry. They would fight often and try to get each other in trouble with their dad. Typical. (laughs) Yeah. It actually sounds a lot like my relationship with my youngest sister, who is actually eight years older than me. Oh, really? I actually feel like me and my brother are a pretty solid team. Yeah. Well, you you were so much older than him, Mm -hmm. you know? But when you lived at home... eight years older than you. When you lived at home, you were like, you know... Oh, when I lived at home, it was a different story. He's mom's little angel or whatever. Golden boy. Yeah, golden boy. True. (laughs) Well, this wasn't a hostile rivalry. Sarah described it as hot and cold. In one minute, they'd be shoving and pulling each other's hair, and the next minute, they'd be braiding each other's hair. So they still really loved each other, even though they fought a lot. And it's cute, because Sarah said she just thought Alyssa was really cool and always wanted to know what she was up to. And if she found out something that could get Alyssa in trouble, she'd blackmail Alyssa pretty much and say something like, I won't tell if you give me one of your toys or, you know, something innocent like that. Yeah, totally get it. Michael had his hands full raising two teenage daughters, and Alyssa was kind of a spitfire and rebellious. She would occasionally drink alcohol or smoke pot, but nothing too hard. Yeah, I just think of the two girls from that Black Mirror episode with Miley (laughs) Cyrus. 
you know, it's kind of a similar family situation with the death of the mother and the tension that creates. And there are some moments when I really pitied the dad in that episode. You know, it can be a very stressful household living with two teenage girls. I can't. No, I would hate it. Michael was more strict with Alyssa than he was with Sarah. I mean, if she was more rebellious, that would make sense. But Sarah actually said she would do the same kind of rebellious stuff Alyssa would do, and he didn't seem to be as strict with her. So Hmm. that's kind of interesting. Right. At some point, Michael started to feel that Alyssa had some special needs. Now, Barbara's sister said Mike thought she had special needs, but that Alyssa was just a lot like her mama. Very outspoken and very Southern. And Mike just wasn't used to that and thought she needed to be diagnosed with ADHD. Alyssa was feeling stifled by Michael constantly trying to make her better. Which is really difficult when you're just trying to do your own thing and figure out who you are, but your parent wants you to constantly be better or different from what you are. Yeah, I mean, we've all been there. We all know that the more a parent tries to control you, the more resistant we get. Mm-hmm. Yes, very true. <laughs> she also had a boyfriend named John, and the two of them really seemed to love each other and were getting pretty serious. Alyssa also had some really close friends and was a good friend to them. They described her as loving. In 2001, she attended Paradise Valley High School and worked at Jack in the Box. She was a hard-working girl and never missed a shift. And despite Michael's concerns that Alyssa had special needs, her manager at Jack in the Box thought that she was very quick, a very quick thinker who did not get distracted easily, competent, and never seemed confused, even at the most hectic days at the restaurant. Yeah, so it really doesn't sound like someone with a learning dis- disability or even someone with ADHD, you know? Mm-hmm. But Alyssa had dreams of getting out of Phoenix and moving west to California. She had an aunt living out there and would often talk about moving in with her to get onto her feet so she could establish a new life out there. Don't we all have that dream? (laughs) I do. Well, I didn't until I married you. Now I usually do. (laughs) On May 17th, 2001, in the evening, Michael Turney placed a call to 911 alerting them that his 17-year-old daughter, Alyssa Turney, was missing. He told them he had an idea of where she was heading and that she'd most likely run away to her aunt's house in California. That was the last day of Alyssa's junior year, and the school had planned an early release. Michael picked her up earlier that day and took her out to eat. Then he brought her home. They were talking about her upcoming summer vacation and how she was going to spend her time during the break. Michael was concerned about all of her plans. So the conversation apparently got pretty heated and ended in Alyssa storming off to her room. Mm. Michael says they had a pretty intense fight. Yeah, Michael decided to let her cool down, and he left the house to go run some errands. Apparently he was shopping for a camera lens. While he was out, he kept on trying to call Alyssa, but she wasn't answering his calls. For Alyssa's sister, Sarah, it was the last day of seventh grade. Her class spent the day at a water park, and when they returned to the school, Michael wasn't there to pick her up. So she went to a friend's house to wait for a ride. Apparently, this was pretty normal for Sarah. Like, if her dad wasn't there to pick her up, she'd just find something to do until he showed up. So this Hmm. day, she went over to her friend's house. After running his errands, 
Michael picked up Sarah at her friend's house around 5 p.m. and they returned home. On the drive home, Michael was frantically worried about Alyssa because she wasn't answering and asked Sarah to try to call her. Neither of them could get through. When they arrived home, the two of them went straight to her room. Alyssa's backpack was dumped out all over the floor. And this is where it gets interesting. Um, Alyssa's phone was in her bedroom along with a note. And Rosie, will you read that note? Yeah, it said, Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Alyssa. So, that's interesting. Very. Now, Sarah wasn't too surprised by the note. She was accustomed to Alyssa being rebellious and had heard her talking many times about running away to California. So, she actually wasn't worried. But Michael was very visibly distraught. He became obsessed with finding his stepdaughter. Which is a good thing, right? Yeah. Something that's obviously really odd about this that stood out to me right away is the fact that she left her cell phone behind. And it's like a huge glaring red flag. But maybe she just figured that it was on her dad's plan and she'd be pissing him off by running away. So knowing that he would most likely cancel her phone plan anyway, why bother taking it? That's... Completely disagree. <laughs> well, that's just how this could possibly be explained away, but we'll get so. into it later. Okay. After reporting her missing to police, he started making flyers about her and contacted the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But with the info that she'd most likely run away to her aunt's house and the thousands of missing persons reports they get every year, the police weren't too interested in the girl's disappearance. And... Michael seemed to be on his own at the time for trying to find Alyssa. Hmm. Michael was very concerned about his stepdaughter. He kept the flyers in the dashboard of his car. He would hand them out at the mall and hang them on light poles, and he would talk to anybody he came in contact with, urging them to keep an eye out for Alyssa. A week after she went missing, on May 24th, Michael received a phone call from California at 5 a.m. The call woke him up. So he says that Alyssa called him. So she's alive? Okay. And her voice sounded really muffled, but she criticized him for how he treated her and cussed him out. And then she told him to leave her alone and hung up on him. Hmm. So this, I mean, must have been like a punch in the gut, but that didn't stop him from trying to find her. To him, it just gave him more hope. Hmm. Michael was so distraught, he forgot to dial star 69 to see where the call came from, and instead he jumped out of bed and drove around Phoenix, checking nearby payphones, hoping that Alyssa was at one of them. It's interesting though, Alyssa had a boyfriend and other really close friends, and she never tried calling them. Like, she called her dad, but not her close friends that she wasn't trying to run away from. Maybe it's because she left her phone behind and forgot their numbers. Because, hmm. I mean, she'd remember her home phone number, but maybe she didn't remember her friend's numbers. Anyway, just another little detail that was kind of suspicious. Now, at some point, Michael started making trips to California 
to look for Alyssa in areas that he suspected she may have gone. On some of the trips, he took his daughter Sarah along. These trips would mostly be searches at the mall or beaches in California, but on other trips, he would search more dangerous areas where sex trafficking was common, and he'd leave Sarah at home for these. Yeah, he spent pretty much all of the summer of 2001 searching for her and really seemed to be making a huge effort to find his daughter. But nothing was working, and time kept passing, and Alyssa was nowhere to be found. Michael was getting discouraged and starting to spend a lot more time in bed. He would waste a lot of days just watching TV from his bedroom. Sarah would often have to bring him dinner in bed, and when he wasn't in his bed, he was gone looking for Alyssa in California. So his life was becoming consumed with finding Alyssa, as it should be for the parent of a missing child. Right. But Sarah still wasn't too worried. She was still expecting her sister to come back, figuring she was just in California having a good time. Hmm. Like we said before, that's what Alyssa would talk about a lot, getting away to California. Mm-hmm. Michael was a bit suspicious of Alyssa's boyfriend. He told police that she had recently gotten into a fight with him. And he even gave them footage from the home security system of them fighting in the carport of the home. Wow, interesting. Mm-hmm. They were arguing, and she threw her phone and broke it. And then her boyfriend got into his car and sped off. So something kind of heated happened there. But police didn't think there was anything too malicious or violent about the boyfriend and his actions in the video. It just seemed like a normal argument to them. So that didn't lead anywhere. Time passed, and for several years, there were no leads on Alyssa. No clue of where she had gone. But there was finally a new development in Alyssa's case. Now we're going to introduce a new character. Thomas Heimer. He was a convicted murderer in Florida, sentenced to life in prison in 2003. And in 2006, he made some shocking confessions to police. Heimer claimed that he had been responsible for killing 21 women. And one of the women he admitted to killing was Alyssa Turney. So let that sink in. It's a really huge claim to make. I mean, 21 women? Mm. So before we dig further into that, let's talk about who this Thomas Heimer guy is. Thomas Heimer had been convicted of murder in 2003. He had brought a woman he was dating, named Sandra Goodman, to a hotel, and while they were in the room, he strangled her to death. Then, he stuffed her underneath the hotel bed and drove off in her car. So this guy is obviously a cruel piece of crap. Yeah. Sandra's body was found by the cleaning crew the next day. They checked who booked the room, and they found that Thomas Heimer had checked in with his ID. They quickly found him, and he confessed, and was convicted. So that one was pretty easy to solve, but according to him, he had been a serial killer for a long time. Hmm. Um, so obviously the FBI wanted to be careful about these confessions and make sure this guy was telling the truth mm-hmm. before they just convicted him. The FBI took Alyssa's photo and mixed it in with photos of several other women and showed it to Heimer in a photo lineup. They asked him to identify Alyssa, and right away, he picked out Alyssa's photo. So, he's starting to seem pretty credible here. I mean, we know he's capable of murder because he was already convicted. 
After the FBI got him to ID her photo, they handed the information over to the Phoenix police. So, this was 2008. There hadn't been any news about her for seven years, and finally it looked like they were going to solve her case. Although it was looking like a very sad ending. But this led to her case being reopened and brought back into the minds of the current detectives. The detectives assigned to her case were William Anderson and Stuart Summershoe. Heimer gave a very detailed confession to the detectives. He said that in May of 2001, he was traveling across the United States when he stopped at a biker bar in Phoenix, and he came across a van in the parking lot. There was a guy standing outside the van, and Thomas punched him. The guy was knocked out cold, so Thomas stole his van. Obviously, who wouldn't do that, right? Of course. <laughs> Thomas said Alyssa was in the van he stole, strung out on heroin. He started driving across the country, and she was cool with it. I mean, she did say she wanted to get out of Phoenix. So after traveling together for a while, they started a relationship. He said that he was into really unusual BDSM sex, and Alyssa was on board for it. He said one night after they had traveled to Georgia, they were in the middle of this rough sex when he ended up killing her. Wow, that's yeah. quite the story. He doesn't say whether it was an accident or not, but I'm guessing it wasn't, given that he's claiming to be a serial killer. Yeah. After she was dead, he said that he dismembered her body and disposed of her at a recycling plant in Georgia. Wouldn't that have been reported? Like, don't recycling plants scour through everything they receive to see what they can reuse? Yeah. That's disgusting. This is a really... How could he make this stuff up? This seems like this is it, you know? True, yeah. Uh, but they were unable to find any evidence supporting his confession. And to be fair, this was seven years after he had been arrested, so what evidence would there even be left over? You know? Now, detectives, they just weren't buying this story. Her boyfriend said that their sex was very normal. There was no strange BDSM stuff. And it's impossible to hide a heroin addiction from people around you. But no one that knew Alyssa noticed anything strange about her that would support her having a heroin addiction. Uh, to be fair, these are habits that could have been introduced to her when she ran away. And she could have just gone along with it. But as time passed, Heimer's story fell apart. And he was given a polygraph test, and he failed. Now, we don't believe that's real evidence that he didn't do it, but this genius also admitted to killing J.C. Dugard. So his cover was blown when she was found in 2009. And let's be real, Thomas. The murder you actually committed was so stupidly done. You checked in with your real name. You left the body in the room. You stole her car. It was just an idiotic procedure that he had. As if he could get away with 21 murders using his skill set of absolutely nothing. Yeah? So where did he get the idea for this in the first place? And how did he positi positively ID her so easily? Alyssa's story had been run regularly in the U.S. Today Journal as part of an outreach for the Center of Missing and Exploited Children. Heimer saw her story and clipped her photo out of the journal. And I think it's pretty obvious why he did this. He told the investigators that he was going to make them famous when he first called them up and said he was going to 
confessed to all this stuff. So being famous was obviously on his mind, and he was already in prison for life, so why not try to go out with a bang and get some fame out of it? But that leaves investigators at another dead end for what really happened to Alyssa Turney. Yeah, so now we know this was a false confession and seemed to just be a huge waste of time, right? But before this confession, Alyssa's case had pretty much been silent. And when this confession happened is when investigators actually really began taking her disappearance seriously. Because up until this point, it was pretty much written off as a simple runaway. But it had been six years since Alyssa had been seen by anyone, and detectives realized there was a lot more to look into here. While investigators were digging into who Alyssa was, trying to find the truth about Heimer's confession, they uncovered some disturbing details about her home life that led to the, led the investigation in a different direction. Yeah, they had questioned a bunch of people that knew Alyssa when they reopened the investigation, trying to build a profile of who she really was. And they realized that these people had never been questioned before, even though they should have. And like we said, the investigation of Alyssa seemed to be non-existent because they were led to believe she'd run away willingly to live with her aunt in California. And even though Michael had appeared to do all he could to search for her the summer she went missing, he wasn't pressuring the police to find her at all. But after talking to many people at New Alyssa, police started to suspect her father, Michael, may have had something to do with the disappearance of his daughter. Now, why would we say that? This guy was vigilant in trying to find his daughter. He distributed flyers, searched for her, and talked to anyone he could find about her. But he had some strange habits that led to the suspicion. So first, let's talk about the surveillance. Michael Turney was obsessed with recording everything that went on inside his house. He had many cameras set up around the premises of their home, including the carport, the front door, and even in the living room. He also had a recording device capturing every call on the home phone. But the living room camera wasn't obvious to people. This is a really weird part. It was hidden in a vent concealed to anyone who may be on it under the assumption that they're alone if no one else is there you know mm-hmm. if you're in someone's living room and no one else is around you're you and you don't see a camera you're not expecting to be on camera but you think this is great if a girl went missing in a house full of surveillance maybe that could help police figure out which way she headed or what happened Police learned about the surveillance after Alyssa's case came back to their attention and asked Michael for the recordings, but he told them that he had already gone through the recordings that day and there was nothing relevant to Alyssa's disappearance. But the police still wanted the tapes. Obviously, any bit of footage of Alyssa the day Michael dropped her off before she disappeared would be relevant to the investigation. After being pressured by police once again to turn over the tapes, He told them that there weren't any tapes from that day. Wait, so this guy had been recording everything that happened in his home for decades? And now, when the biggest event of his life happens and his daughter goes missing, he doesn't even have the tapes from that day? But this trend continues as we get to know Michael Turney better. 
Sadly, after all these years, a lot of the physical evidence that could have been collected no longer existed. So they had to start this investigation from scratch. They obtained a warrant to search Michael Turney's home, but he no longer lived in the house where Alyssa had lived when she disappeared. Yeah, he moved across the street, apparently. Oh, that's odd. On December 11th, 2008, they went to search both the old house and the new house, desperate to find any evidence connecting him to Alyssa's disappearance. But remember, he had seven years to get rid of any shred of evidence. The day of the search, they didn't just storm him. They parked down the street and waited for him to come outside. Eventually, he popped out to run to the mailbox. So this is where it gets really interesting. What he was wearing was what some would say strange for someone that's just going to get their mail. I mean, I'm a mailman, and if I saw this as I was approaching a mailbox, I would be really uncomfortable, and I'd get out of there ASAP. Mike had two pistols on his person with seven magazines filled with ammo, as well as a knife and a recording device. Yeah. So, obviously, he's got some issues. Um, In an interview with 2020, when they covered this case, they asked him about being paranoid, and he said, anyone who would be paranoid after working in law enforcement. So, Mm -hmm. like, do all police officers strap this hardcore to go get their mail? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think so. They couldn't find anything connecting him to the disappearance, but they did find some really weird stuff. In his house were 26 homemade pipe bombs filled with gunpowder and roofing nails, 19 high-caliber assault-style firearms, and two unregistered silencers. Silencers are very sketchy, and they aren't even legal in all states. They are in Arizona, but these particular ones weren't. They weren't registered, which, if you have a silencer, you need to register them. So that just screams suspicious. Also on the property, they found a van filled with tanks of propane and paper. There were chlorine sticks lining the wheel wells, and a large rock sat near the gas pedal. So it really seems like this van was prepped to be a bomb itself. I looked up whether chlorine was flammable or explosive, and according to the website for the CDC, or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, chlorine itself is not flammable, but it can react explosively or form explosive compounds with other chemicals such as turpentine or ammonia. So maybe he was thinking they would explode with the rest of the van? Wow. They said that this was the largest explosive seizure in Arizona history. They had to evacuate the entire neighborhood for days to safely seize the explosives. And that was far from the end of it. After all this craziness, they came across a safe in Mike's room... And after picking it, they found several copies of a manifesto on thumb drives in sealed envelopes addressed to different news media outlets. It was 98 pages long, entitled, Story of a Madman Martyr Lost in an Obsession for Justice and Closure in the Wrong Place and at the Wrong Time to See Things Better Not Witnessed. Hmm. Jeepers, that's a mouthful. Within this manifesto, there's a written plan that goes along with the stockpile of explosives and weapons. 
So we'll get into that in a minute, but along with a couple of these copies of the manifesto, there was an accompanying letter from Mike. So Rosie, will you read what those letters said? Mm -hmm. It says, to the reader, inside this envelope you will find my last writings that may give some insight to how I got to this point in life. That my death, vengeance, and mass murder was all I had left for the murder of my daughter, Alyssa Turney. Hmm. Interesting that he mentions Alyssa. So he's saying that this manifesto will be his final writings, implying that he plans on dying as he carries out this plan. He also refers to mass murder. Hmm. Yeah, after this discovery, police assumed that they had prevented a domestic terrorist attack that could have happened any day. There was more evidence on Mike's property showing that he had the means and intention to carry out the plan that we're about to discuss. Yeah, and also it states that this would be his vengeance for the murder of his daughter. So does that mean he knows that someone murdered his daughter and who it was? This is all so wacky and complicated, but let's talk about what the plan was in his manifesto, and then we'll get to the part about Alyssa. Okay. Within the manifesto, there was a to-do list. Number one, throw a firecracker over the wall. Two, Prep van for fire. Set lighter fluid and papers. Three, drive to union fence. Four, set off smoke bombs. Five, light fire. Six, drive through the fence. Seven, shoot truck gas tank. Eight, shoot 100 rounds into the door or anyone moving. Wow. Scary. That's intense. So how could this be interpreted any other way than a plan to attack someone, you know? Especially with all the pipe bombs they found, the guns, and this van that was clearly prepped to be used as an explosive device. It even had a large rock by the gas pedal, most likely to be used to send the van driving unmanned. Hmm. They also found a bag containing a wig, face paint, chemical suits, a bulletproof vest, gas masks, and canisters. And he had $4,000 cash and a fake ID in his wallet. He claimed it was just for Halloween and also that he'd been planning to run away to California for years. And what is the deal? Yeah. So that's odd. But there's this union that he keeps talking about that he wants vengeance on. So we'll we'll do our best to explain that. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW, is a labor union for electricians that Michael Turney had been a part of from 1974 to 1980. Never even heard of it before. (laughs) Mike said that he was on a ladder, and another union member knocked him off the ladder trying to kill him. His injuries from this fall led to him getting disability insurance. According to Mike, he had complained about this, and it caused the union to have resentment towards him, and that this is why they kidnapped and murdered his stepdaughter and disposed of her body in the desert center of California. So, okay, this doesn't gel with his original statement that she ran away and then called to chew him out. If she was kidnapped and murdered, how did she call him? So I think it's pretty obvious that this guy is completely bananas. And if he is telling the truth here, that means this whole time he knew who was responsible for Alyssa's disappearance. 
he knew they killed her, and yet he never told police about it until he was arrested. So this union we just described is who he had planned to attack with all his accumulated, accumulated weapons and his detailed plan. It's really scary because Mike's house was searched on December 11th, and on a calendar in his house he had a big X on December 15th, which was only four days later. Wow. And this happened to be the date of the next scheduled union meeting, a holiday party with over 100 people planning to attend. So it seems like he was prepared to enact his plan in just four days. His arrest could have saved many lives, especially since one of those steps to unload, one of those steps in his plan was to unload 100 rounds into anyone that moved. <sighs> But later, he claimed to have already had taken his vengeance. Yes. So, this keeps getting crazier and crazier. Mike actually admits to two murders that he had already committed. Wow, it's interesting. He said that he'd already tracked down and killed the two men responsible for Alyssa's death. Their names were Charles Parsons and Gary Morris. So, could Mike actually be telling the truth here? Did he murder these two men after finding out they murdered Alyssa? Mike said that he went to meet Charles Parsons, and as soon as he pulled up in his car, Charles got out and started shooting at Mike. So he shot back, killing him in self-defense. Then he says he went up to meet with Gary Morris out in the desert, also a guy from the Union. Mike says that when he got there, he was grabbing Gary and shaking him, asking what he did with Alyssa. The man replied, we killed her. She's in Desert Center, California. Then Mike went into a blind rage and unloaded his gun into the man's face. Again, this whole account is according to Mike. But the crazy part is that on Mike's property, there was actually an ID and a social security card belonging to Gary Wayne Morris. Hmm. So that's terrifying. But the ID actually had Mike's picture on it. And after looking into these men further, they realized both men had died years before Alyssa went missing. One from suicide and one from cancer. Yeah, so completely unrelated to Mike. Um, but Mike doubled down, on, doubled down on his original statement and said he did kill two men and they were carrying IDs with those names on them. Hmm, this so, is strange. Yeah. And there's no evidence that Michael Turney actually murdered these men. Another thing to note is that when these men died, Michael Turney possessed a private investigator license, so he may have had access to things that he needed to find their identities and produce fake IDs. But why would this guy implicate himself in two murders? Well, if he could convince investigators of the story, it would shift the focus for Alyssa's disappearance off of him. And it would also justify his plans to attack the Union Hall. So obviously something fishy is going on here, and it's really hard to figure out because Mike is obviously lying about something. But either way, whatever happened, he couldn't deny his illegal possession of deadly weapons. Mm -hmm. In April 2010, Turney pled guilty to possession of unlawful destructive devices, which is a felony. He was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. And that's where we'll pick back up next week. 
we're going to dig into more details about all these strange um, incidences with Michael, uh, what people say about him, and different things people heard from Melissa, as well as some suspicious events that occurred. Mm. So, Very interesting. What do you think so far, Rosie? I um, think this guy's a real piece of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's that pretty much sums it up. So, yeah, that's it for uh, this week's story. But real quick before we wrap up, we want to get vulnerable with you guys for a minute. First of all, we just want to say we appreciate each one of you so much. Whether you've been listening from the beginning or you're new to our show, you mean a lot to us, and we wouldn't be able to keep going every week if it wasn't for the support you guys give us by listening, emailing, or messaging us, and, of course, our amazing patrons. You all keep us going. For every hour of content you guys hear, there's probably from 5 to 10 hours of research behind it, as well as a few hours of editing the outline, the recording itself, and then editing that, and then a couple hours of post-production, getting it all put together, and posting it, and doing the social media. So, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Definitely. Um, so what we want to say is, if you listen to our show every week and you really appreciate it, uh, we'd really love if you'd consider supporting us with just $2 a month. You know, if everyone that listens weekly gave us $2 a month, we'd be able to dedicate a lot more time to putting the show together, probably do it full time, and just making it the best it can possibly be for you guys. And we also completely understand if you're not able to afford that, but if everyone listening just pledged a couple bucks a month, that's only $24 a year, it would make a huge difference in our lives and the quality of our show. Now, the idea is the more individuals that join, the better, because we don't want to be a significant financial burden on any anybody. And we don't want people to feel like they should pledge a large amount to us every month. So we're trying to get more individual people involved so, you know, we can have more support with less actual burden mm -hmm. per person. Uh, again, of course, there's no pressure, but whether you support us financially or not, we love and appreciate you just listening. It's just something to think about. So anyway, do you want to say anything, Rosie? We definitely, definitely appreciate the support of our patrons. And we enjoy getting to know them, too, with the messaging feature that's on the Patreon app. Yeah. Website. Um, we have some really cool people that support us. Mm -hmm. And we would also love to do this as a full-time job instead of as a hobby that we barely have time for. Yeah. <laughs> so that but, would be really great. Yeah. It, it has been one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life is making this podcast and getting to know all you guys and hearing that it makes a difference in your lives and that you appreciate it. It's been really awesome. Mm-hmm. So anyway, enough of that sappy ranting. Um, should we share a couple of reviews? Sounds good. So I got two short and sweet ones for you, Rosie. All right. The first one is entitled My New Faves. At first, I was not sure I was going to like the podcast. A few episodes in, I'm hooked. I love the monotone vibes of this podcast. From Laura.Steph28 via Apple Podcasts. So... The monotone thing isn't isn't all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then there's one more from Canada. The second one says, or is, love the show. Love the show and stories you choose. Keep up the good work. So like I said, those are short and sweet, but um, that's from Chels OXO from Canada. And did you say the first one? Mm-hmm. It's from Laura Steph 28 So thank you guys both so much for leaving those lovely reviews. And um, yeah, this story we're covering the next few weeks is really intense, obviously. But next week it gets even crazier. And the week after that, we're talking to Sarah, um, Alyssa's sister, about her personal experience and the impact it's had on her. And our conversation was really nice. We appreciate her talking to us so much. Um, Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say, Rosie? We're going to be in Chicago next week. Oh, yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. That came up fast. It sure did. I hope that we are... And we're ready. <laughs> yeah, we're both kind of sick this week, um, so <laughs> that's why we sound so drained. But hopefully, we w- will feel better by then. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. you. If this is your first time listening, you can follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast, on Twitter at VOV Pod, or email us at VOV Podcast at gmail dot com, and join our Facebook group at Voice of the Victim Support System. So, I think that's about it. I think I covered everything. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.